You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Ariana Siegel. Ariana is an actor, a comedian, and writer. She's a friend of a friend who I went to grad school with, and she's recently been certified as a coach for artists in the career and life coach kind of sense of the word, and I was interested to hear her perspective on mental health, among other things. Before I get to the interview, I wanted to say that this week has been overwhelming in the news and politics realm, but also really beautiful on Saturday with the Women's March. We went to the New York City March, and if you didn't get a chance to participate, wherever you are, Brittany Bond, who was on episode 7 of The Compass, took some beautiful images at the New York City March, and you can take a look at brittanybond.tumblr.com. I'm going to share an article by writer Margaret Atwood entitled, What Art Under Trump? If you'd like to skip ahead to the interview, feel free. I hope you enjoy the 61st episode of The Compass. This is an article from The Nation, published January 19th, 2017, entitled What Art Under Trump? In a time of crisis and panic, artists and writers can help remind us that we are more than just voters and statistics. It's written by Canadian writer and poet Margaret Atwood. Uh, and just before I get started, be warned, this article is full of names, which I will attempt to pronounce correctly, and I'm sorry in advance if I am not entirely successful. Of what use is art? It's a question often asked in societies where money is the prime measure of worth, usually by people who do not understand art and therefore dislike it and the artists who make it. Now, however, the question is being posed by artists themselves. For American writers and other artists, there's a distinct chill in the air. Strong men have a well-earned reputation for suppression and for demanding fawning tributes. Suck up or shut up has been their rule. During the Cold War, many writers, filmmakers, and playwrights received visits from the FBI on suspicion of un-American activities. Will that history be repeated? Will self-censorship set in? Could we be entering an age of samizdat in the United States, with manuscripts circulating secretly because publishing them would mean inviting reprisal? That sounds extreme, but considering America's own history and the wave of authoritarian governments sweeping the globe— it's not out of the question. In the face of such uncertainties and fears, the creative communities of the United States are nervously urging one another not to surrender without a fight. Don't give up. Write your book. Make your art. But what to write or make? 
50 years from now, what will be said about the art and writing of this era? The Great Depression was immortalized by John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, which described in detail what the Dust Bowl years felt like to those living through them at the lowest level of American society. Arthur Miller's play The Crucible provided an apt metaphor for McCarthyism, with its witch hunts and mass accusations. Klaus Mann's 1936 novel Mephisto, about the rise of a famous actor, showed absolute power corrupting an artist absolutely, a fitting story during the reign of Hitler. What sorts of novels, poems, films, television series, video games, paintings, music, or graphic novels will adequately reflect America's next decade? We don't have any idea yet. We can't. Nothing is predictable except unpredictability. It's probably fair to say, however, that Donald Trump's interest in the arts, gauged on a scale from 1 to 100, is somewhere between 0 and negative 10, lower than any president in the last 50 years. Some of those presidents didn't give a hoot about the arts, but at least they found it politic to pretend. Trump won't. In fact, he may not even notice they're there. This might, in fact, work to our advantage. Stalin and Hitler took an interest in the arts and considered themselves experts and arbiters, which was very bad news for the writers and artists whose styles displeased the authorities. These got packed off to the gulag or condemned as degenerate. Hopefully, most creative people will find themselves flying under the radar, so insignificant as to escape detection. The United States has no gulags. It prefers to express displeasure through behind-the-scenes blackballing. The screenwriter's phone doesn't ring, as it didn't for the Hollywood 10. The musician's songs go unplayed, as Buffy St. Marie's were during the Vietnam War because of her song, Universal Soldier. The writer's book fails to find a publisher, as was the case for many years, with Marilyn French's From Eve to Dawn, A History of Women in the World. A change in the overall cultural climate may well be expected, with rewards of various kinds flowing to those willing to ride along in the wake of the incumbent powerboat, and quiet punishments meted out to those who refuse. Those reprisals may take the form of noxious POTUS tweets, like the recent one in which Trump kicked his celebrity apprentice successor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right in the ratings, or vulgar public denunciations, like his dismissal of Meryl Streep after, the Golden Glo- after her Golden Globe speech implicitly criticized Trump as a bully. And what will happen to freedom of speech, that hallmark of American democracy? Will the very idea become a euphemism for hate speech and internet bullying, a hammer to whack political correctness? That has already begun. If it intensifies, will those defending the concept of free speech then be attacked from the left as collaborators with fascists? Surely we can look to the artists to uphold our better values. Don't they represent the most noble features of the human spirit? Not necessarily. Creative people come in many makes and models. Some are merely paid entertainers opportunists out to make a million bucks. Some have more sinister agendas. There's nothing inherently sacred about films and pictures and writers and books. Mein Kampf was a book. Plenty of creative people in the past have rolled over for the powerful. In fact, they're especially subject to authoritarian pressures because, as isolated individuals, they're very easy to pick off. No armed militia of painters protects them. No underground mafia of screenwriters will put a horse's head in your bed if you cross them. Those under attack may be defended verbally by other artists, but such defense counts for little if a ruthless establishment is bent on their destruction. The pen is mightier than the sword, but only in retrospect. At the time of combat, those with the swords generally win. But this is America. 
It has a long and honorable history of resistance, and its multi-voiced and multifaceted variety will itself be some defense. There will, of course, be protest movements, and artists and writers will be urged to join them. It will be their moral duty, or so they will be told, to lend their voices to the cause. Artists are always being lectured on their moral duty, a fate other professionals, dentists, for example, generally avoid. But it's tricky telling creative people what to create, or demanding that their art serve a high-minded agenda crafted by others. Those among them who follow such hortatory instructions are likely to produce mere propaganda or two-dimensional allegory, tedious sermonizing either way. The art galleries of the mediocre are wallpapered with good intentions. What then? What sort of genuine artistic response might be possible? Maybe social satire? Perhaps someone will attempt the equivalent of Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, which suggested the consumption of babies as an economic solution to Irish poverty. But satire, alas, tends to fall flat when reality exceeds even the wildest exaggerations of the imagination, as it is increasingly doing today. Science fiction, fantasy, and speculative fiction have often been used to register protest in times of political pressure. They have told the truth, but told it slant, as Yevgeny Zamyatin did in his 1924 novel We, which anticipated the Soviet repressions to come. Many American writers took to science fiction in the McCarthy years because it allowed them to criticize their society without being too easily spotted by the powers intent on quashing criticism. Some will produce witness art, like those artists who have responded to great catastrophes, wars, earthquakes, genocides. Surely the journal keepers are already at work, inscribing events and their responses to them, like those who kept accounts of the Black Death until they themselves succumbed to it, or like Anne Frank writing her diary from her attic hiding place, or like Samuel Pepys who wrote down what happened during the Great Fire of London. Works of simple witnessing can be intensely powerful, like Nawal el-Sadawi's Memoirs from the Women's Prison, about her time behind bars in Anwar Sadat's Egypt, or Jan Lianke's Four Books, which chronicles the famines and mass deaths in China during the Great Leap Forward. American artists and writers have seldom been shy about exploring the fissures and cracks in their own country. Let's hope that if democracy implodes and free speech is suppressed, someone will record the process as it unfolds. In the short run, perhaps all we can expect from artists is only what we have always expected. As once solid certainties crumble, it may be enough to cultivate your own artistic garden, to do what you can as well as you can for as long as you can do it, to create alternate worlds that offer both temporary escapes and moments of insight, to open windows in the given world that allow us to see outside it. With the Trump era upon us, it's the artists and writers who can remind us, in times of crisis or panic, that each one of us is more than just a vote, a statistic. Lives may be deformed by politics, and many certainly have been, but we are not, finally, the sum of our politicians. Throughout history, it has been hope for artistic work that expresses, for this time and place, as powerfully and eloquently as possible, what it is to be human. All right, well, the question that I always start out with is how do you keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Lovely. Uh, anti anxiety meds, which 
also lovely. A few months ago. Have you felt a big difference? It changed my life. Really? Like the fact that it took me so long to get on them makes me so sad. Like I like what would my twenties have been like if I had been properly medicated? But okay, whatever. Things happen for a reason. Um, <laughs> and I'm also a practicing Buddhist, so that oh, okay. My that in the meds I feel like have been the biggest. That they keep me sane. Has the Buddhism been around for a long time in your life? Um, two years, about. Totally changed my life too. And it's a practice that I do every day, so I feel like, you know, like the pills I take and they're great, but it's a pretty passive part of my day. But like my, my I chant, and that's like super intentional. And that's you know I try to do. I'm supposed to chant at night too, but I definitely do morning, and that's usually like half an hour at the smallest amount. And if I can do like an hour of it, it's really good. Um, and what does the dark side usually look like for you? How does it manifest mm. in your life? The dark side, I feel like I'm not as in the dark side right now, so I feel like I'm, I'm like, talking about a part of myself that was, like, in more in my 20s, but it's a lot of anxiety, yeah. and it's a lot of tying my value as a person to my success as an artist, mm-hmm. and success, like, in a very specific way, and, um, and then, like, there's a spiral of, like, oh, I didn't hear back from this person I pitched this thing to, oh my God, I'm never going to hear back. Oh my God, I'm a terrible writer. Oh my God, I'm never going to get paid. I'm going to live on the streets and the dialogue. Like, right. it just goes really quickly for <laughs> From me. A to Z. From A to Z. But not as much on these meds, which is amazing. Like, I'll try, if I tried to have one of those thoughts right now, it like, wouldn't hmm. happen. So a part of me kind of misses that part because it felt very much like that's who I am. But um, it wasn't a helpful part, and it was really, like, I feel like I spent 70% of my day just getting myself out of the spiral. Yeah. And then the 30% I could do work. That's so much energy. It's so much energy, and I was really good at keeping it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And so I know you're a writer. Mm -hmm. You said in a comedian. Are you an actor as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do mostly voiceover work now, which I love, especially if you're as lazy as me. It's perfect. (laughs) Can you do it from home? from home and I just go into my closet and like sit amongst my clothes and record <laughs> my voices from my closet so I'm like in my pajamas and it's great such a great deal and I know that you do coaching now for acting yeah. can you mm-hmm. tell me like how that came about oh, and so it's not coaching for acting it is creativity coaching. for for actors for I'm acting. sorry exactly. not for acting yeah, so like, well, <laughs> no <laughs> I don't want to tell you how to make it or is it for any type of artist? Um, it's for any type of artist or creative. Okay. So I feel like that spans like a large amount of people. Now I'm so afraid people are going to be like, can you help me get into grad school? And I'd be like, I don't know. I'm <laughs> so sorry. Please go somewhere else. Um, yeah. So I just got certified as a professional coach through Transit. It's Coaching for Transformation. It's a program at the Open Center um, accredited by the International Coaching Federation. So it's a real, real thing. It's a real certificate. And, um, yeah, I help artists or creatives overcome their blocks, which Mm. we all have so many of, and, like, really get in touch with all those voices versus, like, 
I don't know. I just feel like there's so much coaching that's like, just like be positive and like just love yourself. And it's like, okay, that's cute, but let's like really engage with those more difficult parts, the dark side, yeah. right? Because there's so much wisdom in the dark side, and the dark side lives with us forever. We just learn to manage it better. It's not like I'm gonna wake up and not be anxious. Those voices will live with me, but now it's like I deal with them in a better way. I have some empathy for them because they're a part of me that's like just trying to protect me. And underneath that part is like a wounded part of myself, right? So, so it's really about how do we engage with these parts of ourselves? How do we have compassion for these parts of ourselves and not repress those parts of ourselves? How, you know, have that conversation and then move towards our goals and really figure out what we value, what's important to us, making sure our goals aren't goals that like someone else has that we sort of decided we should have or that our parents thought we should have, like really digging into what we value mm-hmm. and then moving from that space. So, you know, I had all kinds of goals in my 20s that I didn't really want, but I thought I was supposed to want. Also, the things we value change. So like what I value mm-hmm. at 22 is different than 32. So that's basically what I do when I actually do workshops for creatives. Um, I have a workshop called Buff Brand, What's Your Mission? <laughs> and it's exactly that. It's like really exploring like what's our brand and like how does the world view us? What about that is useful? What about that is bullshit? Because uh-huh. there's so much more than that. And then digging into why we make art, especially now that the world is ending. Like... <laughs> We can't just be making shit willy-nilly. We need to like it needs to be connected to like what's important to us. That doesn't mean we have to make political work. It just means that we have to make work that's in alignment with what we care about and then just let go of the rest. Yeah. So what made you decide that you wanted to go through that training and pursue that? So I was really sad. Um, I had started like achieving some success in my career and then I was still really sad. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait. That's not supposed to happen. That's not supposed to happen. I thought if I book these things, then, like, I'm happy. Fuck. And then I also had this realization that it was sort of happening on a larger level to a lot of other people, like people that were way more successful than me. Um, I had a conversation with (laughs) Andrea Martin, actually, which was amazing. Uh, I met her at Williamstown, and she got a coffee with me, like, the following winter. And... You know, I sort of assumed it would be, like, easy street for her. She's Andrea Martin. She's one of the Tonys. But she was like, yeah, once I started getting older, the phone stopped ringing. And I was, like, depressed for two years. And I was, like, you know, in my late 50s. And she was like, am I going to work again? Is this it? Yeah. And she said she was really depressed. But then she decided she was going to do a one-woman show at The Public. And she said it was the best thing she ever did. And I was like, fuck, this can happen to Andrea Martin. Like, it can happen. It's going to happen to me. So really, I saw, it wasn't like I was so afraid of failing. I was like, oh, I'm going to get successful and still be unhappy. That's really fucked up. Like, so I just, I had that moment, and I was at the end of my 20s, and I was like, okay, so being an artist is important, but I can't tie my success to it. What else, what brings me value and meaning? And I'd been in therapy for a long time, and I'd also been the recipient of some coaching. And I was like, I feel like I want to help people. And I was also a big sister. I did a, I'm part of the 52nd Street program. So uh-huh. I had uh, a kid that I worked with who was amazing for seven years. So I worked with him from when he was in sixth grade till when he just graduated. That's and it was awesome. like the best part of my week. Yeah. Better than auditions, better than anything. It was just a time I wasn't worried about my own shit. And I could focus on him, and he just brought me so much joy. And I was like, I love that. But a part of me was like, you can't worry about other people. You just got to worry about your own success. 
And I felt really ashamed that I wanted to help people. I felt like, I, know, I felt kind of shameful about it. So I, would, I sort of had told myself, whatever, it's just a volunteer thing. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know what? Everyone comes to me for advice. I like helping people. Maybe, like, coaching is what I need to be doing. And I've also taught before. Um, so I went on a limb. I threw down a ton of money for this nine-month program uh, last summer. And I just did it. And I loved it. And it uses so many of the skills that you develop as an actor, which is why I'm really good at it. Yeah, I'm sure listening and empathy and it's a huge part of it. Yeah, and I found even, like, in acting, like, I can listen, but, like... Am I deeply listening, like, at an audition? Like, I'm kind of listening, but I'm also kind of in my head, and I'm also kind of thinking about lunch. You know, I'm, like, <laughs> doing some good surface listening, but with coaching, you can't, you're list, you are listening, like, on some super, super deep levels. Like, you're listening to what the client's saying. You're listening to the subtext. You're listening to their facial expressions. You're listening to their tears. And then you're just listening to, like, the energy and the intuition that's happening between you two. And it's just really intimate. And I just yeah. love being intimate with strangers. I don't know why. That's lovely. Yeah. So that's what, that's what got me into it. What has your experience been since you got your certification, like, trying to build that as a business and finding clients and kind of negotiating? Uh, Mark? Like, why have I found one more thing that is so difficult? Well, like, well, because it's something you love so much, but, like, the part of it that's also to, you know, make you money and... Yeah. Do all that. All the things I love are hard to do. I'm going to be a dentist. I know. We all think that at one time or another. (laughs) You know, it's like the business part is really hard for me. You know, I got to get, you know, I got to get my shit together. I have clients. um, I've, you know, written articles on mental health. I have workshops I've done, but like I need to organize my shit. So it's hard, Mm -hmm. but I think that. I really care about what I do, and I really care about people, and um, if I just stay in that place, then it helps the whole business part be less stressful. Because I feel like with performing, it's like there's that 2% where you're like in it, and then there's so much bullshit around it. There's like auditions, there's, there's representation, there's callbacks, there's the fact that you can book a pilot and then it doesn't go anywhere. But I feel like with coaching, there's a larger percentage of it that I just get to truly enjoy yeah. without worrying about all this other Actually stuff. get to do the thing. Yeah, so I'm really just trying to think about how much I enjoy doing the thing and also like, what's great is like now that I'm the coach, I can kind of coach myself so I can be like, why are you avoiding your business? Let's tap into that. <laughs> questions and not be so hard on myself. Yeah. I'm a professional at being really hard on myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of artists are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of it is just asking the hard questions. Yeah. Which we can all do to some extent for ourselves if we really put our mind to it. Yeah, I think it's get around like those blocks. Elizabeth Gilbert talks a lot about just being curious. Mhm. So like instead of being like why do you suck at business? Why are you so shitty with money? Just being like that's a curious thing about you. We should explore that. <laughs> curiosity versus like, you suck, which is like yeah. the voice in my head most of the time. I like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, how does your family uh, take in your choice to be an artist, to live your life as an artist? Are there any other artists in your family? Mm-hmm. Come from a doctor and CPA and 
years. <laughs> but they've always been really, really supportive, which is awesome. I don't know if I could have gotten this far if they weren't supportive. Like, my friends that don't have supportive parents, which is, like, dang. Yeah. Wow. That's really nice. Yeah, it's super nice. Do they get to come up and see your work ever? Or? Yeah, they, they come to see a lot of plays. My mom's been really good. She's so sweet. She'll see, like, a show three times. Cause she's like, That's the way my mom is, oh, too. Yeah, <laughs> they would love it. Like, so they're real, they're art appreciators, which I really, I like. I almost feel like they are way more excited about the art than the coaching, but that's okay. Well. They spent all that money on NYU for my acting degree. <laughs> so they're not looking for the return on that. Well, and it's something that they can see. Like, when you're actually doing projects, right. they can exactly. see tangibly what it is. That's true. That's true. They're big fans. I do, I do a lot of stuff for the web, and uh, they, they like to quote my work, which is really funny. <laughs> Um, so you've been in New York since undergrad at NYU. Yeah. How are you feeling about it these days? Do you think you'll stick around? or? I feel like I'm going to become like the old ladies with like, the Stevie's bags, you know, like <laughs> in, the, the, in the cart. I feel like if I don't leave eventually, I'm getting close to becoming that lady who's just like a hunchback. I don't want to raise a family here, and I don't want to grow old here. But then there's a lot of gray space in between now and then. Right. Uh, I don't know. L.A. always was promising. I want a dog in the backyard. Um, but I also have spent some time in L.A. And if you're not, like, really working that 9 to 5 or something super regular, it will swallow you. <laughs> just, you'll just lose. You'll be like, I have to get a taco. I'm so tired. Like, I'm so <laughs> tired there. And I didn't do anything. It's, I don't know what it is. There's something about New York of just being able to walk out the door and like yeah. walk anywhere or get on a train yeah. that does make it easier not to isolate so yourself. I really need nature and I That's don't true. Get enough of it here. No, like, me too. I feel like when I'm in nature, I feel so much better and being in the city often just physically makes me feel like a garbage can. <laughs> just like, just like, I just want to sit in the tree and <laughs> hear like a police siren. Right. You know, yeah. So kind of. So I'm wondering, like, how can I have this be my home base, but then spend time out in LA, and then also with the coaching, I want to be doing retreats and stuff. And how can I go out to cool places and be in nature and yeah, do this kind of work. Also, with voiceover is cool because you can kind of do it from wherever. That's true. So, how did you first get into voiceovers? I lucked into it. I don't think I would have gotten into it if I tried because it's really kind of hard to break into. So That's I, what I've heard. had a commercial agent, and they. I guess I was signed for voiceover and no one told me about it. And then they just started sending me out and I was like, oh crap, I don't know anything about this. So I started working as a coach and um, then I've just been doing that ever since. And I just like it because I'm, I guess I just always grew up doing a lot of voices mm-hmm. and I'm really lazy. And I, like, <laughs> I, don't, I, like, I don't like dressing up for things, so it really just like suits me very well. It's the perfect combination. <laughs> it's the perfect combination. <laughs> Um, and then for your like your writing and comedy work, are you somebody who likes to work alone, or do you have collaborators who you um, have built relationships with that you guys kind of work as a team? Yeah, I have a, I built a sketch comedy group out right out of uh, college that we were together for a long time, and then from that, me and my writing partner started working together. So we've been working together for like eight years. We've oh wow! A ton of stuff. We've worked for HGTV and College Humor, and then we just got hired as staff writers for the show for True TV, which is our first TV writing job. So it was awesome. amazing to have her next to me every day. Also, slash, we might have like wanted to kill each other after 
spending, you know, 10 hours a day with each other. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we were, we were kind of on a, we're both doing our own thing right now, but I'm sure we're going to come together pretty soon to, to do something. Um, I think we're going to do a fundraising show, um, post-election fundraising show with some good storytellers. So she's amazing. I met her at NYU. We both did sketch comedy, and she was, like, the only other tiny Jewish woman. And I was like, we're either going to kill each other or become best friends. So we decided to become best friends. That's great. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, how do you guys deal with that, like, when you are under pressure, you've spent too much time together, and you have disagreements, like, as creatives? You know what? We have <laughs> we have no problem working together as creatives. I think it's spending time together as humans that we have with. Um... But we've, I mean, we've worked together under crazy, stressful situations, and we just, like, share a brain at this point. We know what she's good at. We know what I'm good at. We have no ego in, like, what gets cut, whose idea it is. It's very, we, we just, like, want, we're just both committed to excellence and working really, really hard. And I think that's why we work together, because we're tireless. We're, like, crazy tireless people. And um, we're perfectionists. So, yeah, working together, we never fight about that stuff. It's kind of just sometimes, like, friendship stuff, like any other friendship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have you learned anything through your coaching that you feel like has changed the way that you audition? Yeah. Or, like, the way you handle nerves or anxiety around auditions? <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to actually give a Buddhist answer and not a coaching answer. Okay. Um, so, as Buddhists, we talk about, like, how do we bring value to each situation and how do we make each situation count? So instead of just being like, oh, whatever, it's just a stupid audition or like, I'm not going to get it. Um, really being like, how can I bring like love and compassion and how can I bring love and compassion into this room right now? Hmm. Not even like, how can I do the best acting job? Like, how can I just like walk into the room being like, I'm full of compassion for these people, and I'm just like so glad to be here with these people, you know, and just feeling grateful. Because um, then it puts this, I think it sort of like sends that outward energy versus like being all in yourself and being like, did I do a good job? Did I do a good job? Um, yeah, I think it's just really about like honoring the people you're auditioning for. I know it sounds kind of weird, but it's really helpful. And I think people pick up on that energy. Mm. Is there anything in the past few years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Like a lesson you've learned? Yeah. Well, I, two things. Well, yeah. I mean, writing for this TV show was amazing. Like to write something and then see it on TV mm-hmm. really was like, oh, I'm manifesting. Like I'm manifesting. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's really been, that was really huge. And I also had this experience last fall where I um, I was speaking at a Buddhist meeting and um, telling this story about how what I've gotten from my Buddhism more than anything is just like having more faith in myself that even if things taking even if things take a long time like I have faith that in the end I'm gonna make it happen and encountering obstacles are just a way to heighten my resilience and my resolve. They actually are an opportunity for me to deepen my faith and like deepen, well deepen my faith in myself and my resolve. So basically I gave this, um, I gave this like speech about how I like went on 
it's the audition. It's just a year where I just went on a ton of auditions and I didn't get anything. And I pitched a ton of stuff and I didn't go anywhere. <laughs> and what I got was it was the first time since ever where I was like, you know what? This is a great opportunity for me to just tell myself that, like, I'm really going to go for it versus being like, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. This means I'm never going to achieve anything. So Duncan Sheik happened to be at this meeting because he's a member of our district. And the and New York Magazine was doing a profile on him, and they included me in the profile. So I was like, I was so happy to be in New York <laughs> Magazine just, like, talking about my struggles as an artist and, like, my resilience as a Buddhist. And I was like, hmm. yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad they caught me in that moment yeah, right? <laughs> instead totally of a different one. And Duncan said it was the best experience he ever heard. He's been practicing for 25 years. So, hmm. Yeah. So I felt really good about that. Um, and I it's so funny. I feel like the stuff I'm most proud of is not even like the achievement. It's like that process. The process I yeah. really care about. It's never like any award I've ever gotten. It's like, okay, that's cool. But it's always just like the process of making stuff, being on set and writing and being in the booth, and being with the client. It's always like the unsexy stuff that has the most meaning, not like the, the achievement-y in the traditional sense part. So like, that always feels a little like, meh. Can we talk a little bit about uh, like day jobs and stuff? Yeah. I know it, it sounds like maybe, I don't know if you're making your whole living from voiceovers and creative work at this point, but how have you kind of pieced together that puzzle over the years? Yeah, so this year was the first year I made all my money from my art. Congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. So that was really good, but this it's never promised. Um, right now I'm making money from um, coaching, mm-hmm. and um, I also work as a bar mitzvah singer. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I am a part of a Jewish acapella group that sings at bar mitzvahs. That's fantastic. It's fantastic. Um, other crazy day jobs, I was a gym teacher. Mm-hmm. I was a regular teacher. I taught after school, like, playwriting and comedy writing for kids. Um, what other things? I've been a server and a barista mm-hmm. and a bartender. Um, I was also a stripper for one night. <laughs> uh, one eventful night. One eventful night, I was a stripper. I made a lot of money, but then I was like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> um, what else have I done that's been weird? I think the stripping... And the bar mitzvah singing and the gym teacher are the weirdest. Um, I guess, yeah, that's one of the big themes of the podcast is like, how do artists find balance when they're making a lot of wonderful work, but not necessarily making their entire living from it? Yeah. Um, and how you can kind of keep your your self-confidence and when you're not getting that financial right. validation, you know? I have to say, though, I mean, the reason I started coaching also because I was like, I don't want to wait tables anymore. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that like the, the skill sets that you have as an artist, whether you're a writer or an actor, can be translated to other things. So there may be a day job that's actually really in alignment with your values and the things that you're good at, so you're not stuck doing some random job that has no meaning for you. You know what I mean? Like I worked with clients, I worked with a client who was like telling me about, she's a stand-up comedian, and she was telling me about like how much she loves animals. And I was like... You don't need to be, you can be waiting. If you want to wait tables, that's great. I mean, sometimes there's something to be said for something where it's like, I just go, I don't put energy mm-hmm. into it. It's flexible. It's flexible, it's fine. Um, but I was like, you should, should consider like doing some sort of veterinary stuff. So, like, I feel like there's a way to find day jobs that are just like um, an ex- 
like an expansion of the skill sets that you already have or the values that you already have as an artist. Um, so I also challenge artists to think about that too because I don't know, I feel like we're told we our stuff is, you know, like our talents are like useless, but they're not. Being an actor, like, you know, like you can help people with public speaking. Like there's just so much you can do um, with the skill sets that you have as a performer. You know, but that can translate into a lot of stuff. I also know um, another comedian that does motivational speaking for colleges. There's just like so much. <laughs> if you can think of it, it exists. And I feel like now someone will pay you for it. The gig economy is sort of like up to us to manifest it in a lot of ways. Mm. Though I made a lot of money serving, so that was really great. <laughs> no, no shame, no shame. Are there any other aspects of the coaching or like the mental health conversation that you want to touch on that I'm not asking you about? that you think would be really valuable? I think that I spoke to someone um, about this. I was really afraid I would lose. I I lost my anxiety. I would, like, lose my drive because I feel like I was driven by fear, like the fear of, like, not keeping up with my peers, like, which really has driven me. Yeah. Uh, well, that's kind of like heightened feelings can be addictive because yeah. you feel like you're doing something because you're having to struggle against totally. it. And being like, that's my brand. I'm a neurotic Jew. That's my whole bit. Um, <laughs> but really realizing that my creativity doesn't come from anxiety. It comes from like my essence of who I am. And I, I've always had it. So I think people romanticize all that garbage of like being depressed and anxious. And I mean, I know right. so many talented people that are dealing with addiction and um, depression and anxiety and all kinds of things that go untreated. And I just, I don't know, I just want to advocate for mental health, however that looks, whether it's meds, whether it's therapy, whether it's, you know, Eastern medicine, whether it's uh, support groups. Um, because that's actually how you're going to tap into your creativity. All that stuff really takes you away from your creativity. So I just really yeah. want, because then it's like, then you have Amy Winehouse and you have like all these really talented people that kill themselves. It's like, and that some people romanticize and some people are like, Oh, well, you that's know, a real artist. Yeah. And I'm sad or unless I'm depressed. Well, it's like, how long do you want to be doing this for? I'm trying to be in the biz till I'm old. Yeah. I'm not going to make it till 80 this anxious. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to make it another five years this anxious. So it's like, if we're in it to win it, we need to like really, it's like a marathon. It's like, are you going to wear shitty Converse and like eat a ton of hamburgers before you run a marathon? No, you need to self-care and have all the proper tools so you can fucking run the marathon. Yeah. And no better time to start than in your 20s and 30s. Like, do not wait till you're 60. <laughs> you know, or, or start. If, if you're 60, start. It's a great time to start. <laughs> it doesn't matter how old you start. But I just, I feel like the younger, the, the better. Um, I think it helps your chances. So anyway, I just yeah. want to say that. No, that's I'm great. Just, I'm, you just need to get over it. So if you are having a day where you're feeling really uninspired or down or writer's block or however that manifests for you, what are the like concrete things that you reach for again and again, like a book or, I mean, it sounds like you're chanting, uh, a place you go, anything like that? I say go get some art, like go consume some art, like go see a show or like go to a museum. I find that once I start seeing art, I like it, it, re- it revs me up again. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like 
I do this thing where like if I don't feel ins- I mean if you don't feel inspired you have to work anyway a lot of the time so it's like I set a timer for an hour and I just write and I tell myself it can suck it doesn't matter if it sucks it doesn't matter if this is total garbage but this is my job so I have to sit here for an hour and do this and sometimes it'll suck for 20 minutes and then like it'll start to rev up again um, but I think we put too much emphasis on like being inspired. I think a lot of it is like shitty grunt work of like showing up to the computer and doing it. You don't have to be happy while you work always. You know what I mean? Like you can feel like garbage or you can feel sad or you can feel blocked and still show up and put some words on the paper or like go to that audition. You know, you can feel like garbage, but as long as you go, you do it and like you did your job. And I think that that can be enough. You know, I also think rewards are really good. <laughs> I buy myself pieces of jewelry when I've, um, either when I've achieved something really great or when I've had a really, really sad failure. <laughs> to be like, you tried really, really hard. Nice. Yeah. That's so, a great idea. Mm-hmm. My writing partner got me to do that and it's changed my life. Because I'm like, oh, well, I did get that job. So guess I'm going to be getting a new bracelet. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you get to see those items and remind you mm-hmm. of your hard work. Yeah. Um, and then... Is there anything that you've seen lately that you want to recommend? Like friends show or anything? Um, I am enjoying TV-wise, because I watch a lot of TV. I'm kind of bad about seeing theater. Um, I want to recommend... First of all, we all need to be watching BoJack Horseman. Oh, I don't know about this. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's, Where do you watch such a thing? Um, what channel is it on? Is it on FX or is it on Netflix? I forget. But it's a cartoon for adults, and it's basically about this, like, sitcom actor from the 90s who's super washed up. And just it's about, like, the pitfalls of Hollywood and fame and hating yourself. It's, like, <laughs> it's actually our conversation today. But in animated form. And every, everyone's an animal. <laughs> it's really dark. It's really sad. It's really beautiful. Okay. Um, and I also am really enjoying Atlanta. Yes, I've started watching it. I haven't gotten too it's far yet. So good. That's what I keep hearing. And really smart, and I feel like it's making its own category in comedy. Um, that's really really great. And um, I started watching Insecure too. On yeah, TV. that's really great good. too. I yeah, love that. I, I binge really watched that. Yeah, it'll be interesting, for sure. Interesting, really, like, heartfelt stuff is going to come out of it. Yeah. Um, And then what's the name of the show that you were writing for, the True TV show? Oh, it was a show called Almost Genius. Okay, so people can check it out. Yeah, please check it out. Um, The show is no longer, I think we're done. Um, I'm not sure if we're rooted for another season. But, um, yeah, I'm back to the, like, looking for a job place. Awesome. It is a cycle. We have to do it over and over. And is there, do you have like a website for your coaching or if anyone wants to get in touch with you? If you want to get in touch with me, you can just find me at arianasegel.com. Okay. That's A-R-I-A-N-A-S-E-A-G-E-L.com. I I don't have a 
specific coaching website yet, but we just go to my website and check my shit out. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was such a pleasure. podcast. I'm Leah Walsh. More episodes are coming soon. Please look for us on Facebook and iTunes. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller. Music by Brendan Spieth. Audio assistance from Nick Choksi. And a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.